Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. Uh, as you know, uh, Peter and I are on vacation. Peter, as you might know, is my executive producer. And uh, we recorded... Uh, four new shows in advance uh, to run while Peter takes his family on their annual adventurous vacation out west. So we have these four brand new shows we're uh, playing while we're away, and we always pick a a favorite to rerun uh, during this vacation, and this time it was a no-brainer. Today uh, we're playing my interview with Heather McGee, uh, the brilliant activist, the brilliant lawyer, former head of Demos. This is a stunning interview about her book, The Some of Us. Uh, the Some of Us is, a, is about how uh, Republicans have sold white people in this country the idea that it's a zero-sum game, that anything that helps people of color uh, takes away from them. And the opposite is true. We, you know, Paul Wellstone said, we all do better when we all do better. Um, I, I mean no insult to every other wonderful guest I've had. I just want to say that this is the best one we've done. And you will get so much out of it, I, I, I promise. Now, before we go to Heather, I just want to remind folks that I'm starting the only former U.S. senator currently on tour tour on September 18th in Northampton, Mass., then over to Milwaukee, across to Minneapolis, down to Dallas, over to Atlanta, up to Pittsburgh, then across to D.C., up to Albany, uh, down and across to Kansas City, up to Chicago, down to St. Louis, <clears throat> over uh, to Boulder, then down to Austin, and then way up and across to Ithaca. I'm going to end up at some point in uh, Washington, D.C., our nation's capital, and New York City, the Big Apple, uh, so exciting for all of you who live in, in those cities. And I think I, I left one or two out. So uh, you can go to alfranken.com to, to check out my tour schedule. And I hope you come I, 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 and say hi when you're there. Um, and by the way, <clears throat> um, uh, anti-vaxxers get in for half half price, but they've, they've got to get vaccinated. So hope you come. Okay, now to our best podcast ever with Heather McGee. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. 
living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example, let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that means that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code AUDIO to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code AUDIO at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code AUDIO. You probably don't remember this, but I worked with your team really closely on Dodd-Frank and um, the credit ratings um, reform and just generally, you know, you were one of the rump group of senators who saw the problem for what it was. And I'll always be grateful to your leadership. Well, wait, whoa, 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 Heather. That yeah, to, why didn't we do that before you recorded? Don't do that before we're recording. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, you got it? Okay, get this part on tape two where I'm I'm chastising her. Okay, now, that's fine then. <laughs> I love the book. Love the book. Thank you. The Sum of Us. Oh, man, there's so much in it. It's so comprehensive in a great way. And basically, zero sum sort of sums it up, which is that uh, everybody, but particularly whites, uh, see that if other people gain, they lose. Is that what zero sum would be? Yep, that's exactly right. And it's a racial story. It's basically the idea that America is made up of racial groups that are in competition with each other for status on a hierarchical ladder. So if people of color gain, that is directly in competition with white people's status. And therefore, anything that could be perceived or sold as benefiting people of color, white people will be opposed to, even if it also benefits them. And that's been our history from the very beginning, yeah. uh, beginning with the uh, indigenous people. Yeah. And then, of course, slavery. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty zero sum. Um, <laughs> uh, and, you know, Paul Wellstone, one of my predecessors in, in mm-hmm. my sentence, said this. He said, we all do better when we all do better. Yeah. And I think that this book so speaks to that. But the use of this zero-sum game thinking to divide us. And, and it hurts us all. That's the point you make in this book over and over and over again. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to play maybe a little later. Well, why don't I do it right now? Did you happen to see the um, hearings for Merrick Garland? Not all of them, but... This this is... Uh, I didn't see it all either, but one struck me, which was John Kennedy from Louisiana. Oh, okay. Okay, listen to this one. <laughs> and let me tell you what you think. Oh, boy. So you're basically saying there's a, there's a disparate impact. There's disparate impact, which um, in some cases is the consequence of um, uh, historical patterns. Sometimes uh, uh, is the consequence okay, of let me, let me uh, unconscious bias and some sure. kind of uh, 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 consciousness. Uh, when you were at the Department of Justice, yes. was the Department of Justice then systemically racist? I think each we look for a pattern or practice in each institution. When you talk about a specific institution, you look for its pattern and practices. But but you how do you know what you know? In other words, you say an institution is systemically racist. I, I didn't say any particular institution. I, I know I'm not I'm not saying you did. Yeah. I'm saying if you say an institution is systemically racist, how do you know what you know? Do you measure it by disparate impact? controlling you for other factors? Well, the, the very specific... Or do you, you just look at the numbers and say the, the system must be racist. Well, okay, what's your <laughs> reaction to that? So this country is suffering from the fact that when it comes to the narrative war, the South won. And what I mean by that is the amount of history that this very young country does not know including people who hold elected office um, and write our laws, laws that sit in a body of laws that almost exclusively were written with racism holding the pen. It's just astronomical, the degree to which there's so much historical lack of knowledge and, and that the narratives, the racist narratives, the victim blaming narratives, the erasure of, of history um, that was part of the Lost Cause project after the Confederate failure uh, to secede and to retain slavery. Um, it's just, it's just tremendous. So when I hear someone like the Senator from Louisiana speaking about systemic racism and trying to cast doubt on the idea that racist outcomes come from racist policies, right? So the thing you're supposed to sort of read into that is, well, shouldn't you be controlling for other factors? For example, maybe that people of color just aren't as good, right? That's, right, that's the other factor he's talking about. That's, um, that's kind of what I got out of that myself, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's that's what that is, right? That that's what that is, right? Because it's like, how do you? How does one? No, not being glib about it, because I actually think that this is a this is a problem that afflicts most Americans coming out of this era of colorblindness, um, where that was supposed to be our norm. You had the civil rights period where there was an awareness of you know the whites only signs and the segregated schools and and the you know no blacks need apply, and then you had a period of about 40 years of complete flux and where those signs were taken away. And yet there was never a real effort to both change the enormous racial wealth gap 
that was created by racist public policy by our federal government over the course of all of the wealth building policies from the homesteading, well, from slavery through the Homestead Act um, through to the GI Bill and, and the further mortgage subsidies. There was no attempt to really reckon with the, you know, 10 to 1, 13 to 1 racial wealth divide. And then there was no attempt to really understand the degree to which the persistent economic divides and segregation would continue to create disparate economic outcomes. But because there were no whites-only signs anymore, the you know average white American mind had to find another reason to explain the disparities. And what was right there at the ready was the same old racist stereotypes that had justified the segregation and the inequality in the first place. Black people don't try as hard. Immigrants are, you know, inveterately criminal. Black people are inveterately criminal, you know. And so that's 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 what I read in that um, exchange is a is a real resistance as the right wing has had to just acknowledging the extent of racist policies. What what's interesting to me is um, after George Floyd, we really. Finally, I think, had Americans, a a large majority of Americans say, you know, there is systemic racism in this country. And it took that and a a rash of murders by police and other things to finally get there. But we still had these people, I guess, like Senator Kennedy and like Donald Trump saying, no, there's no systemic racism. Mm -hmm. And what I really wanted to ask publicly every of everyone was okay when did it end mm. what was it what was the point where oh it ended was mm-hmm. it the 1964 civil rights bill oh wait a minute no 65 voting rights act no predatory lending mm-hmm. when when did this end you asshole i would say maybe <laughs> you idiot maybe i mean <laughs> what the hell Another theme of your book and and the whole point of the concept of zero sum is there's also those at sort of at the top dividing us, dividing our country, and you see the people invading the capital, mm-hmm. telling them that any gain for people of color is a loss for you. Mm-hmm. The zero sum... Part of why it's such a distinctive and powerful American poison that is used by the plutocrats to keep the economic system rigged in their favor and always has been is because what it does is it makes people who believe it resent and fight against common solutions to the common problems that they have with other people who are struggling. So take the Nissan story. I traveled to Mississippi in the wake of a failed organizing drive uh, by workers there at, a, at an auto factory. And I talked to the workers, black, white management and shop, and they really were clear that there was a racial divide in the, in the, in the plant. And that as one of the workers I talked to, a guy named Joey said, you know, the white folks here have got their Southern mentality. If the blacks are for it, I'm against it. And there was really a sense that the word union was dog whistle for lazy black people. And so even though it was, you know, clear, certainly 
to the people who were pro-organizing and to anyone who could compare, you know, the wages and benefits that were in the non-union South versus in Detroit and their competitors who were organized by the UAW, um, that it would be that unionization would get them the bargaining rights for better wages and better benefits, for more job security, for better working conditions on the plant floor. And yet it was pretty clear from my research that race was the the underlying factor in causing white folks to vote against it. Um, there were also a, a fair number of Black people who voted against it because of a similar reason, that it seemed like it was sort of admitting defeat to link arms across uh, together with your fellow workers and say, we need to we need to bargain. There's a sort of aspirational, we shouldn't need each other, right? We should need, we should just need the market, right? And that's been the right wing story, right? It, it really started, gained steam with Nixon in the wake of civil rights, uh, the civil rights movement. And the story was, fear people of color, hate the government because the government sides with people of color against you. And therefore, who do you trust? The market and the 1%. Before the civil rights movement, the typical white American was a New Deal Democrat who had benefited tremendously from a massive government handout to create the white middle class. As I said, from you know the Homestead Act through the New Deal, which gave enormous subsidies to your typical white American. And most of those, either by design or by impact, were racially exclusive. The job categories that most Black people held were excluded from the labor protections. The housing subsidies that created the contemporary mortgage market and put tens of millions of working class people with no down payment into home ownership for the first time in history was based on maps that were drawn to deliberately exclude Black neighborhoods out of the never substantiated assertion that Black home buyers would be risky. And so you had this sort of invisible handout to create a white middle class. And what happened when Democrats said, you know what, we're going to extend these benefits across the color line to people that, frankly, the government had been teaching white Americans to disdain and distrust for generations, white people said enough with government. It was a massive betrayal. And what ended up happening, of course, and this is why my book is about the cost of racism to everyone, is that white people then turned their backs on the formula that had created the middle class and threw in their lot with a party and an economic ideology that has created nothing but wealth at the top and inequality for everybody else. It, it sort of um, resurrected or uh duplicated the original white slave-owning class telling poor whites, uh, at least you're better <laughs> than uh, poor blacks. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. So when we have a society that is as hierarchical and brutal as American society has been, the presence of this class of people that are meant to be sort of permanently on the bottom um, and, you know, in the times of slavery and Jim Crow, you know, you need only look at the condition of your Black neighbor to see exactly what you don't want to be, the way you don't want to be treated in the eyes of the state and society, the rightslessness, the poverty, you know, just the, the dehumanization. And so that was a wedge and a cudgel 
for the white elite in creating those laws that created that you know, brutal hierarchy of human value in society, what it did was it lured white people to side with their race instead of their class. And so you could have folks struggling at the bottom of the economic ladder, but white people would always be at least one rung above on the racial ladder. And so it's that clinging to that status that is inherently threatened, according to the zero-sum story, by the presence and progress of people of color, that sociologists have researched, it makes people, white people, more conservative. You talk to them about the demographic changes coming in America, happening already, and politically unaffiliated white people become more conservative, like in the, in the course of a survey design, right? Um, on not just, you know, issues like government spending, where you see a 60 percentage point gulf between if I'm a white person with low racial resentment, I am 60 percentage points more likely to support increased government spending on behalf of the people. Racial resentment is the terrain on which these questions of economic policy um, have been decided ever since the civil rights movement, you know, extended for once, finally, the web of public protection and public benefits across the, the color line. Uh, you know, uh, there's a couple things you write about that I want to bring up to talk about, for example, white people shooting themselves in the foot so that black people don't get something. And mm. one one really stark example is a communities closing their swimming pools, draining their swimming pools. <laughs> <laughs> when they were required to integrate their swimming pools. So it's summer, and we're not going to have our kids have a swimming pool, a beautiful, beautiful community swimming pool that everyone loves. We're going to drain that so that black kids and black people can't swim in it. That's exactly right. And and this is a story that ended up being really the parable at the heart of the sum of us, because... It's just a really concrete way to understand the shift. You know, I, I grew up, Al, in the sort of progressive economic orthodoxy. I'm somebody who, who worked on economic policy for nearly 20 years. And I learned the story of this sort of golden era of shared prosperity from the New Deal into the 1970s as a time when taxes were high, they were plowed into public investments, college was free or close to free, um, you know, working class people could join a union, the minimum wage was high, there were just all of the, you know, businesses were heavily regulated, antitrust was enforced, so you could hang a shingle on every corner. It was this sort of like golden era. And frankly, you know, it's something that Donald Trump harkens back to when he says make America great again. He's talking about that period of time. And what he's making loud is the part of the story, which was that that whole contract had an asterisk to it, and it was for whites only. Now, how do you sort of really understand that in the most vivid way? It's a story that I unearthed in the book that happened all over the country, and importantly, not just in the segregated South, quote unquote, where we used to have, it's just one of the symbols of that kind of commitment that the government had in this period to a high standard of living for its favored citizens, which was grand, lavish resort-style swimming pools that could hold over a thousand swimmers. And I went to the site of one of them in Montgomery, Alabama, where in Oak Park, it was whites only, this pool. And once a court threatened to integrate the pool, 
um, because black citizens sued saying, you know, our tax dollars fund this pool, we should be able to swim as well. The town of Montgomery, the city of Montgomery, voted to close the public pool, drain it, fill it in with dirt, seed it over with grass, and not only that, but close the entire parks and recreation department of the city. They even sold off the animals in the zoo. And they kept the parks and rec department closed for a decade. You were near high till 1970 before Montgomery had a parks and recreation department because of racism. And that drained pool has created the drained pool politics that we've had. This sharp rightward turn to austerity from the majority of white voters who who left the Democratic Party after Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights and Voting Rights Act, moved to the right, went to trust the market, and what do we have left, right? Now we have a society that can't handle a pandemic in a way that, you know, every other advanced country has been able to do better with fewer deaths. A society with no universal health care, with no universal child care, paid family leave, where we can't keep the lights on and the power on in Texas because they wanted to go it alone and, you know, throw their, their thumb up at government. This is where we all are, in the bottom of a drained pool, at a time when the minimum wage has been stagnant for a decade, and at a time when 40% of adult workers are classified as low wage, making $10 an hour. This, this is really the, the formula that racism has brought us. And that's why the book talks about the cost to everyone. Obviously, all of these systemic racist policies, the shift away has meant that Black families never got to swim, right? We, we never got, you know, the, the bargain, the economic bargain that was, was promised to Americans in the middle of the 20th century. And so racism completely hurts Black folks first and worst, other people of color, indigenous people, you can see it across every measure. And yet, this formula has bankrupted our country in so many ways. And so it has a cost for everyone. It does. I mean, it again, the swimming pool thing is, again, shooting yourself in the foot uh, in order to. So the, uh, the left, you know, I don't know what the, uh, I'll think of this later when I redub myself and sound <laughs> smart. I do that all the time, by the way. Cutting off your nose to spite your face is, I think, what you're Thank you. looking for. You're and welcome. I will put that in and as if I had thought of it. No, I won't. Please do. Uh, I mean, there's so many areas in which that happens. For example, environmentally, you, you have a whole thing about North Richmond. Is that where it is? In, yeah, in, uh, yeah the Francisco. whole city of Richmond, and then there's a part that's Oh, yeah, that's even, right. North Richmond is, is, yes. Anyway, so... Because it's all 97% black and a certain part of it, they've just put these Chevron refineries and it's just awful. And But there is a white area that turns out that uh, they think because of the prevailing winds, they're fine, but they ain't, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so this is another thing where it's like, we're not going to have environmental rules just because it'll put black people there <laughs> and they'll get the they'll get the pollution and they'll get sick and they'll get higher incidences of cancer we won't that's right that's it's, nice it's, that's a nice way of thinking isn't it yeah it's it's this this environmental racism <laughs> i'm sorry to laugh that's another thing i do i laugh at horrible stuff you, you know in some ways you have to right i mean it's just so Thank absurd you. Thank you, you just have to. It's so absurd. It's, it is cutting off your nose, nose to spite your face. It is this 
Illusion. Let me write that down. Uh, Cutting off your nose to spite your face. Okay. Writing that down. You know, I'll, for a minute, <laughs> over the last three years when I was writing this book, the working title was To Spite Your Face, which I think was funny to me. The, another working title was You Played Yourself, which I think would only kind of be funny to Black people. So I, uh-huh. I'm i very happy. I'm very happy with where we ended up. Which No, is you're right. More... This is, this, it, it, this is uh, uplifting. Yes, it's more the us. tone of the book. I mean, I think the book, yeah. I wrote it to, to go deep into how terrible everything is, but also, you know, you got to It's so funny. Hope. You're on tour, and the tour, despite your face tour, is very different than the Some of Us tour. <laughs> right? That's exactly right. Yeah, okay. Well, you, you, you picked the right title. <laughs> <laughs> the uplifting title. Okay. Oh. So... Uh, where were we? Well, we were at like the environmental degradation that black and poor people live in in this country, all over this damn country. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of this, the theme of this to me is I think of my former colleagues in the Senate and uh, especially some of the Republicans and just think of like, damn, they're clueless. Mm-hmm. Or they're not clueless. Yeah. And they're evil. Yeah. Or a little bit of both. Just that they don't understand, like I don't think Kennedy does, don't understand reality. They don't understand the reality that the people that aren't their voters live in. Yeah. And also, I think they do, I think they very much do play to what you're talking about, which is the status the feeling that white people get that we're losing our status. Mm-hmm. And please, 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 just I want to keep my status. That's right. And that's made more, status is more alluring when you don't have material benefits, right? I mean, this is what, what I write about in the Some of Us. I say that, you know, the economic bargain of white supremacy is getting, you know, cheaper and cheaper, right? Mm. You know, if, if you only have status left because your kid, too, is going five figures into debt to go to college when, you know, you were able to go to college on the government's dime. Um, if you only have status because you also are, you know, one paycheck away and one layoff away from bankruptcy because, you know, the unions that the party that you vote for that, you know, made your intergenerational wealth. Um, are now on the ropes because of the way that your party treats unions and the, the full-scale attack by corporate America against organized labor that has been cheered on by the Republican Party and therefore by the majority of white people who have voted for the Republican Party. Um, if that is the case, if you are feeling like, you know, the best days for this country's middle class are behind you, then clinging on to the sense that at least you are reflected in the halls of power, at least you are of the class of people who have, you know, assumed worth and that you can walk through the world with the privilege of whiteness, then then perhaps that is even more precious to you than it was a generation ago. And that's what Trump and the right wing are really feeding off of and feeding. You know, they they... For them, the anti-government piece is both ideological and it's strategic because the less that government is a force for good in people's lives, right? The more Americans of all races have to go without 
then the more that they can say to their white base, you know, government is not for you. It's too busy helping the brown and black people. And that's why you are struggling economically. That's why you feel like government isn't on your side. You know, don't don't mind me over here breaking government and cutting a government at every possibility. It's really the brown and black folks' fault. That's their constant message. It's their constant message. Just this past week, we we, you know, have been in the debate over the coronavirus pandemic relief bill, which is more popular than anybody in Washington, right? It is obviously what the country needs. And even Republicans and conservative Republican voters say, of course, we have to do something. In fact, you know, the size is not scary to people. Most people who think the size is not the right number think it might be too small, right? Um, Everyone understands that this country is in serious, serious pain. And yet the entirety of the House Republican Caucus felt empowered to vote against it. And what was their message? Joe Biden is opening the border instead of opening our schools. How is that taking care of our kids? That's a direct quote from a Republican congresswoman from South Carolina. So, you know, it's it's this sense that they can count on white votes because of white grievance, even as it means that people die, they lose their jobs, they lose their homes. I mean, it really is a tremendous incalculable cost of racism to our society. It just seems to me that this this just goes over all aspects of life. Mm -hmm. So we're, you know, if you're talking about education, (laughs) right. And how segregated our schools continue to be after Brown v. Board. And what happened after Brown v. Board was, a lot of school districts formed that were, okay, we're an independent school district because we're a white area. <laughs> we're going to, you know, we'll be integrated, but not really. Or we'll just form Christian academies. Mm-hmm. And so we're about as, we're almost every bit as segregated as we were, right? Yep. And the, and the fact of the matter is, and you write some examples of this, and I see this happening, which is a very healthy thing, which is families realizing that, you know what, being in just with white affluent kids in a 100% white school or 99% white school, that might not be the best thing for my kids mm-hmm. in terms of their life. And and even for me as a parent, because I, I have to hang out with these you know, helicopter parents <laughs> who are obnoxious. Whereas I get to, I mean, you show a number of examples of this where someone opts out of that and says, you know what, I'm going to go to the school where my kid isn't part of the, you know, majority. And then you, you kind of track that kid to college and the kid says, yeah, oh God, I'm a lot better off, boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's an important story. You know, it's it's an important way that... Um, that everyday parents of all races are experiencing, you know, the lighter stages of the drained pool politics, which is this idea that you have to pay an arm and a leg for a house to get to a white neighborhood to go to a white school, right? Like, just frankly, right? Well, that we is, of course, how it. we pay for K-12 through education, which is through property taxes, which we got to do something about that, because that automatically means people in poor neighborhoods, whether 
what we're talking about racially and that cor- does correspond to race because the wealth disparities in between black and white are so evident. So that means <laughs> that means, of course, that if you buy an expensive house and the house is more expensive because it's in this school district because yeah. you pay a premium for that. Everybody yeah. knows that. Oh, God, I got to be in that. So, the you know, and also your investment. So you invest in this house in this school district. Your investment will grow because you're in this mm-hmm. great school district. Mm-hmm. So it's probably a smart economic even decision uh, for you because the value of your house uh, increases. But that only happens if you have the money in the first place, That's which, right. which brings me back to uh, real estate and home ownership, which is to me, one of the basic foundations of the tremendous gap in wealth and income. Uh, a couple of years ago, what was the name of the uh, Boston Globe group that did uh, the thing about the priests? Spotlight. Spotlight. Yes. Thank you. The Spotlight people did a thing on on the wealth of white people in the Boston area versus the wealth of uh, black people. And the, the average wealth of a white family in Boston was about $240,000. The average wealth of a black family... $18 for blacks. And this is pre-COVID. Well, this is where history shows up in your wallet. You know, if you have the the policies that created the 30-year fixed rate mortgage, that created the subsidies to allow people to get into home ownership without a down payment, the GI Bill, the FHA, the VA, all of that was based on explicitly denying black people the right to own those homes. The federal government And that's redlining. That's redlining. That's redlining. The federal government said we are not going to uh, subsidize or backstop or ensure the suburban developments, places like Levittown, right? Places like, you know, one in almost every state, these suburban developments that created these single family housing American dreams all over the country. We will not help you developers, and it's not possible to do it without federal help at that time, if you don't include contracts in these homes not to sell to Black people. Which is shocking. But uh, I, I read that in your book. It's amazing. So that's It's the, amazing. That's like the FHA, right? Right. That's the Federal Housing <laughs> Authority. That is, that is the federal government saying, we, you have to discriminate. Um, People who want to dig deeper into this should. There's a book by Richard Rothstein called The Color of Law, How Government Segregated America. And it's so important. It's foundational Don't make knowledge. people, my listeners, have to read another book. <laughs> Fine. You can just read my book. I give you all you need to know. It's the cliff notes of the whole history. People who listen to podcasts don't read. They listen to podcasts. They can read one book maybe a month. And I would have them read The Sum of Us. Now, don't, don't talk about other books. It's <laughs> just my advice, okay? Take it from one bestseller here. Ixnay, right? Ixnay, <laughs> oh, my other books say. Okay. Um, but because of that, because you can say, of that, he, uh, say somebody smart said this. Just say that. So, <laughs> <laughs> or how about I say I said? <laughs> yes, do that. Do that. I point out in my book. Yes. The sum of us, this. On page 97, <laughs> you can read all you need to know about this history. <laughs> what were we talking about? We were talking about uh, home buying and, and, you know, like, like we were, uh, I'll, I have a thought, uh, the GI Bill, okay? Mm-hmm. So uh, fight World War II, 
And if you're black, you fight in an all black unit, <laughs> mm-hmm. of course. And mm-hmm. uh, and because it was, took Truman to integrate the military. Uh, mm-hmm. But anyway, so you, you you fight World War II. You, uh, you go through that. <laughs> you go through the battle. Of the you go through hell. Yeah. <laughs> you go through hell. You come back. There's a GI Bill. Okay, a yeah. GI Bill. Except you can't buy anywhere because you're redlined. Yeah. And because of that, all those guys from that generation who were able to buy, get a house right away, were able to have a house. And then that's how you, in America, that's how we build our our net worth, our our wealth. That's right. That's how the spotlight people, that's why their their figures came back. And Mm -hmm. that, that probably you can just point to the GI Bill. And you can point to that's how Americans accumulated wealth after World War II. And that is explains such a big part of this gap. Yeah. It's a huge part of the gap. It's a huge part of the $23 billion gap between black and brown on one hand and white on the other hand school districts because property values are linked to how much education we give our children, which is criminal. And it's another part of the sort of, you know, privatizing the pool, right? Because of course, you know, when the public pool was drained, it wasn't that no white kids got to swim anymore, only the white kids who couldn't afford to have a backyard pool. This is when you started seeing these members only swim clubs popping up all over town. In Washington, D.C., over a hundred were formed in the years after integration, right? If you got to pay this is really the story. If you got to pay, it was fine. But that means that, you know, everybody was squeezed and some people just went without. I remember also there was the country club. Yes, and there's always the country club. Yes. the um, When in doubt. And uh, in Minneapolis, I remember uh, I caddied at a uh, country club. Mm. And um, there were only white people there. Yes. And also only Gentile people there. Yes, 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 yes. Very lovely. <laughs> Oh, man. Where were we? A Jewish country club. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, we're going to take a uh, quick break. We'll be back with Heather McGee, author of The Sum of Us. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, so uh, so much here. Um, oh, oh, I know. Let's go to uh, the Great Recession, which was caused, mm. of course, by predatory lending. <laughs> That's a fun topic. You have a 
a chapter about that, basically, right? Yeah, this is important because, you know, this is how we first met Senator Franken. This is how we first met mm-hmm. in the aftermath of the crash and in the efforts to create the Wall Street Reform Bill, which you were a real leader on. And I really will always have so much respect for you because of your, you were part of a group of, you know, maybe half a dozen senators who were never going to back down and had the backbone to keep making the bill stronger and adding provisions even after, you know, the banks had combed all the way through it and gotten what they wanted. And it was really remarkable. Well, thank you. Uh, You know, a big part of the problem was that uh, Wall Street started securitizing these subprime mortgages into financial packages, and the credit rating agencies gave AAA ratings to these uh, financial packages that ended up being junk. But the uh, credit rating agencies, like Standards and Poor's and Moody's and Fitch, uh, kept giving these packages, uh, these packages of mortgages, AAAs, uh, because if they give a package a AAA, then they get the next job to rate the next package, right? Mm-hmm. You're paying your teachers for your grades. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and then they uh, keep chopping up these subprime mortgages and securitizing them. And the credit rating agencies kept giving these packages AAAs, which were later downgraded to junk. And the losses came to half a trillion dollars, which led to the collapse that caused the Great Recession. So I wrote a provision in the Senate bill that said that the banks can't pay for a AAA, that formed a board within the SEC that would assign a credit rating agency to a package each time based on the credit rating agency's uh, capacity uh, to uh, rate these packages and, uh, and their track record over, over time. So that you can't basically shop for your... That's right. Yeah. Shop for your grade. Yeah, so... The, the credit rating agencies would get more business based uh, on their track record. So if uh, a credit rating agency gave triple A's to things that, that went under, that hurts their track record, and they don't get future assignments. So my amendment got 64 votes in the Senate, but it got weakened in conference committee. This is when the House and Senate had conference committees, and I blame uh, Barney Frank and Chris Dodd and... Uh, and Chuck Schumer for for not fighting for that in conference. And anyway, no bitterness here. <laughs> the Senate is a great place. It usually functions to make good economic policy decisions. Um, but yes, we were talking about the financial crisis. This this is the chapter in my book. It's called "Ignoring the Canary," that I feel the most uh, sort of passion about. I cut my teeth as an economic policy wonk on the issue of financial regulation and consumer protection back in the early 2000s, when we were starting to see signs of these new kinds of mortgages, not your 30-year fixed rate mortgages, but rather these mortgages that had all of these new terms that were far more expensive in terms of the rate, that had all these hidden fees, and that were just bad policy. And yet they were being justified by regulators who said, sure, it's fine to flood the market with these because they had been tested out first in black and brown neighborhoods. And the logic was, well, remember that that, you know, black people equals risk, which was the federal government's policy from 1932 to 1977, basically. Then 20 years later, it flips and, you know, actually these neighborhoods where black people are 
are probably still quite risky. And so the banks and the lenders should price for the risk, meaning you should charge someone 9% interest on a refinance of the home they already owned. This is another piece of the story that is so often skipped over is that the majority of subprime loans were not helping people get into home ownership that they couldn't afford. It was taking the wealth out of existing homes. And these are people like refinancing in order to send somebody to college or something, Exactly. Right? Yeah, okay. Refinancing in order to pay off other debt, to send someone to college, to fix the patch in the roof, whatever it is. Refinancing, frankly, because somebody knocked on their door and called their phone over and over and over again until they finally said yes. This was aggressive marketing targeted at black and brown neighborhoods, and the majority of subprime loans went to people who had good credit that could have qualified for cheaper loans because there was no limit. There's no law that says that you have to offer someone the loan that they qualify for. The limit is what you can get away with. And who could they get away with cheating? Black and brown people. And I was in those regulator conversations where folks just said, you know, it... These people, we put them into homes they couldn't afford. And that's why you're seeing this rash of foreclosures in the early 2000s. And of course, what we know, what we knew then, and we know even clearer now, is that Black borrowers with the exact same credit histories and scores and loan-to-values and all of that as white borrowers were three times as likely to be sold these toxic loans. And so that's why this chapter in The Some of Us talks about the financial crisis as a multi-trillion dollar cost of racism to everyone. Because if if there had not been the racist discriminatory targeting and lending, if regulators and the people in power to stop it had held black borrowers and homeowners in more esteem and said, wait, actually, it's not their fault, it's the lender's fault, and something's wrong here and we should do something about it, then it wouldn't have spiraled out of control and ended up taking down, nearly taking down the entire global economy. And and that's what happened. It starts with the predatory lending and people not being able to carry that. And then suddenly those houses go up on the market and, and then it starts to unravel. And that's what happened. Yeah, because it was making money hand over fist. I mean, then you get to the Wall Street side of it. There's the household side of it, which is, you know, what are the loans? What are the terms? But then the reason it got super powered was because Wall Street greed said, wow, we can make twice our money here. Um, You know, we can have these prepayment penalties and balloon payments, and we can have 9, 10, 12, 13, 15% interest rates on six-figure loans. And then there was just a flood of money, and, and, and lenders couldn't issue these loans fast enough to deal with the demand from Wall Street to securitize them. And the securitization is what cut the tie of mutual interest between the lender and the borrower. Because the bank could say, I'll issue this loan, I'll be gone tomorrow. I will have sold it on to Wall Street. I don't care if this homeowner ends up in foreclosure. And then of course you have the credit ratings agency saying, as long as you slice and dice these loans and give us the money to rate them, we'll say they're all A plus, even though you know, the underlying mortgage is one that has a, is a ticking time bomb for the homeowner. And so you just had this sort of passing the buck and passing the buck. And the people that were hurt first and worst were Black families who still have not recovered home ownership rates and wealth rates. And we're back to what we were before the Fair Housing Act. Um, thank you, Senator Kennedy. No, there's no systemic racism. Um, 
you know, it, it's really a tragedy. It's a tragedy that like all of racism impacts black families the most. But, you know, my that chapter is full of stories of white people whose lives are never going to be the same from the cascading losses from the financial crisis. And of course, uh, Wall Street then started making different financial packages from those things, which were completely out of, you know, multipliers of the problem. That's right. Yeah. Um, so Lewiston, Maine. Hmm. The good news story. The good news story. Let's sort of go to some good news. Uh, Lewiston, Maine remind me a little bit of Wilmer, Minnesota, but I'll go to Lewiston first and then I'll tell you a little bit about Wilmer. Uh, Lewiston, Maine is, uh, they had mills there, is it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the mills went away. And how, how where is Lewiston in relation, say, to Portland, Maine? It's about an hour from Portland. Is it north? Is it north of Portland? It's north, yeah. So yeah. it's sort of the central, central Maine. Okay. So their mills are closing and they start to get, uh, Somali Folks, they're coming in. Uh, there's a civil war in Somalia, uh, and we have a big influx of Somalis in Minnesota. I think we have the probably the number one Somali population, but uh, 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 quite a few go to Lewiston, Maine. Yep. And tell us about that. So Lewiston, as a place where the jobs have gone, you know, the young people have left, it's Maine is the oldest state in the nation, the whitest state in the nation. It's sort of a poster child for the kind of, you know, Rust Belt nostalgia that appeal that Trump, you know, preyed upon. This idea that our best days are behind us and that, in fact, you know, the right wing story would go, everything was going great until the Brownies and the Blackies came, right? Everything was going great until civil rights, until Black people started getting ahead, until the immigration laws changed in 1965 to allow people from not just Europe to come into the country legally uh, and become From shithole countries. From shithole countries, exactly. Mm-hmm. Oh, Donald Trump. Um, <laughs> so, right, so yeah. the, it's sort of ground zero for the zero-sum story. Um, and yet, the Main Street, which, you know, held a lot of vacant properties and boarded up storefronts has really come alive in recent years. Um, most small towns like Lewiston are, you know, closing schools and, you know, putting libraries on every other day because there just isn't the revenue. And yet Lewiston is building a brand new schoolhouse. And it's because of the influx of new Mainers from, um, you know, if you if you live in Maine and someone's from not Maine, they just call you from away. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and these are people from really away. These are people, <laughs> they're African Muslim refugees. And I visit Lewiston in the book and I talk to the city, admin, the town administrator, this guy named Phil, who just can't say enough good things about what the new Mainers have done for the economy of Lewiston. And I go down the main street and I talk to um, Somali shopkeepers and I talk to white Lewiston folks who have really turned their own lives around by getting involved in the community. One of the people I talked to is a woman named Cecile, who is a Franco-Canadian, which was sort of the last wave of of people from away in Maine at the turn of the century. And she had lost her French, you know, a good portion of, of the Maine population that sort of did that kind of immigrant assimilation thing where they, you know, were used to be derided as Francos and they were 
you know, there's a lot of anti-Catholic sentiment and then they sort of assimilated into whiteness. And she's getting on in years and she decides that she wants to recall the language of her youth. She's feeling very isolated. She has no family in the city. And so she ends up leaning on the Francophone African refugee and immigrant population for these language exchanges. And they become the center of her life. And she ends up integrating the immigrant Francophone folks with the old white Mainers at the Franco Center downtown. And you've got this incredible cultural exchange. And it's just a story that is one place. And yet, you know, if you look across the country, where rural towns have stopped bleeding population, where they're growing, where they're getting back on their feet. It's because of immigrants from Latin America and Asia and Africa. And this is a possibility, right, of people putting aside the zero-sum story, linking arms across race, and unlocking what I began to call in my journey to write the book, these solidarity dividends, these ideas of these gains that can only come through working together across lines of race to create a majoritarian push for the kinds of solutions that we all need, whether it's cleaner air, better funded schools, more jobs, higher wages. There's a good news story in each of the chapters about basically people who are figuring out a better way to do it, to refill the pool of public goods for everyone, to you know amass enough bargaining power to take on the polluters, to take on the boss, and to restore a sense of dignity to our people. Even, yes, people who are not only white. There's a town in Minnesota, Wilmer, Minnesota, which is the county seat of Candy Yohai County. And Candy Yohai County is the largest turkey producing county in Minnesota. Minnesota is the largest turkey producing state. And they have a Jenny O meatpacking or turkey packing plant there. And mm. uh, so Wilmer has. Uh, decades ago, started uh, getting an influx of Latinx folks, right, to work in, in the Genio factory. And then, um, maybe starting about 15 years ago or so, uh, Somalis. And mm -hmm. so, uh, one day I'm in my office uh, at the Senate, and I get told that we have a new page. Uh, you don't always have a new page. Each page class is about 30, so not every state gets a new page. We have a new page. Her name is Muna Abdullahi, and she's from Wilmer. And she's a Somali Minnesotan. So I go down to the flesh and let's meet her and the whole new page classes there in their uniforms. And she has a hijab mm. and she's Somali. So I go up to her and I go, you look like a Minnesotan. <laughs> and Luna laughs and she's an unbelievable young lady. And they're like juniors in, in high school. So when she, uh, she goes back after her time as a page and then I learn she's graduating uh, from high school, so I, I invite myself <laughs> to introduce her at the commencement. Mm -hmm. So I go there, and I look at the program. There's about 240 kids graduating. About half of them are named things like Nelson and Hovland and Carlson, uh, and they're your Norwegian, Swedish, Minnesotan types, you know. Mm -hmm. And then about, I don't know, I'd say about 30% or so are Latino, mm. and then about 15% are uh, Somali. Mm. And uh, Emuna is one of the class speakers. So the class speakers are the uh, valedictorian, a, a girl who was born in Peru, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, uh, Tate Hovland, the class mm -hmm. president, who's half Norwegian, half German, and uh, in, in stock, and then Muna. And they loved each other. Mm -hmm. They loved each other, these kids. And... Um, 
it was it was one, the best thing I'd been to ever. <laughs> yeah, no, it's the most beautiful thing, isn't it? I mean, when you see this country's promise play out, right? It's such an old, fallacious idea, the idea of the zero sum, the idea that we should, you know, keep our players apart, right? We are on the same team in this society. We need each other. We have got to recognize that. And if we do... The sky's the limit for what this country can do. The, the optimism that I have is from seeing signs like that, seeing places like that, seeing people, whether it's a factory worker in Mississippi, a fast food worker in Kansas City, you know, a retiree in Maine, you know, an immigrant in uh, Richmond, California, who had seen the power that comes from letting go of the divides, letting go of the degrading stereotypes and linking arms and rolling up their sleeves to, to fight alongside each other. I mean, that's solidarity, right? It's, it's not saying unity. It's saying, in fact, your fight may be slightly different than mine. But I know that if I fight for you and you fight for me, we're all going to do better. And, you know, back to Paul Wellstone, we do all do better when we all do better. Heather, thank you so much. Gee, the book is great, and uh, thank you for all the work you've done with Demos all along. You're a real treasure. Thank you so much, Senator. Really appreciate you. Appreciate your voice. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at wondery.com survey. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the new kids and family podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet 
It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. 